we're on page 62 in our workbooks and we're in 1 Timothy 4 in our Bibles and we covered a little bit over half, I guess, of the chapter last week. We'll be picking up in verse 10 in chapter 4 this week and we'll try to uh, build back up to where we left off. But let, let's just go ahead and read the, the rest of the chapter starting in verse 10. So 1 Timothy 4, verse 10, and we'll read to the end of the chapter, and then we'll come back and pick this up verse by verse. Verse 10, for to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those who believe. These things command and teach. Let no one despise your youth, but be an example to the believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Do not neglect the gift that is in you, which was given to you by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the eldership. Meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them, that your progress may be evident to all. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. Now, when we get to verses 12 through 16, it, you may have picked that up. It seemed like a lot of instruction there from Paul to Timothy. And there are, it's, he gives Timothy 10 commands in that section. And so we'll kind of go through each one of those when we get to verse, well, actually meant 11 through, through 16, there's 10 commands. We'll get there when we get there. But verse 10, it is for this, we labor and strive. And what is for this? What is Paul encouraging or saying that he and Timothy need to labor and strive after he's referring back to the need to pursue godliness. We picked this up in verse eight of chapter four. Paul said that we're to labor. Uh, there's our Greek word meaning to wear ourselves out and strive, which means to engage in a struggle as with an opponent. You might kind of use that word as a fight or as a, you know, a wrestler might use this word. So you can see there's some intensity to this word. And, you know, as we look at verse 10, it says, for to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach or, or strive as the NASB says. And the question is, what is this end? What is he talking about? Well, again, go back to verse eight. And what he's talking about is pursuing godliness, pursuing godliness. And if we jump back to chapter three, verse 16, remember God has got a, a certain method or a certain mechanism by which to make men and women godly. And that's to reproduce the life of his son in them. And so what we're going to see in, in the next few verses that we look at here are going to emphasize that when we pursue godliness, when we labor and strive as, as this verse encourages us to do, uh, as well as Timothy, it, you're not, it's not a labor and striving where you're cranking it out in your own strength, where you're pursuing and cranking out godliness in your own strength. What it is though, it's a, it's a diligent pursuit and learning of God's method of making you godly. It's a, it's a commitment, if you will, to God's method to make you godly. It's, it's laboring to rely upon God's resources and being convinced and persuaded that that's our only chance to be godly. And so that's what Paul's talking about. And you'll see this, this balance come together in a couple of verses here that we've got in the workbook. Colossians 1.29, Paul said, I labor striving, okay, but striving how? According to his power, which works, which mightily works within me. And so Paul worked hard, but he didn't work 
in his own strength. And you, and you see both of those coming together where his labor is, is to walk by faith according to God's power. And, and, you know, labor or, or faith, walking by faith takes initiative. It takes proactive thinking. It's not just laziness laying on your bed. It's, it's proactively being engaged and relying upon the word of God. That's just what he's laboring after here. First Corinthians 15, 10, he says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. And he's talking about the other apostles in this context. But then he says, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. And so you see this, this labor, this intentionality, this striving to pursue godliness, but not in a human way of cranking it out in our own strength. It's, it's a labor to pursue godliness by God's method. And that's as we rely upon God trust in him to free us from sin's power and trust in him to produce the life of Christ in us. Second Corinthians 3.18, another reference we don't have there, but you can just write it down. It says that we behold the Lord. That's our labor. That's our intentionality part. We are training ourselves to respond and trust the Lord in our day-to-day life. And as we behold the Lord, the Spirit of God transforms us into the image of Jesus Christ. That's how those two concepts come together. And remember, Paul pointed out in 1 Timothy 3.16 that the mystery of godliness is Christ himself. Colossians 1.27 says it's Christ in you, the hope of glory. So again, what is God's method of making you godly? It's not you cranking it out in your own strength. It's you relying upon God's method of making you godly. And God wants to reproduce the life of Jesus Christ in and through you as you walk by faith and rely upon his resources. So again, godliness does not come by beating ourselves into shape. Godliness comes as we learn to walk by faith. Galatians 2.20 says it well. I have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. This is one of my life verses. I love this verse. It's so rich. But notice again, it's no longer I who live. It's not me who's trying harder to be a better Christian. It's not me who's trying to be more Christ-like. It's no longer I who live but Christ lives in me. And so the key to growing spiritually is to learn how to rely upon the life of Christ that resides in you and stop trying to crank out the Christian life in our own strength. That's the key. And so when we're talking about godliness, again, it's not you working on your weaknesses. It's trusting the Holy Spirit to do something that's otherworldly, something that's supernatural in your life. Again, Notice that this approach to godliness, you know, he kind of brings this out. It's interesting in verse 10, it's very subtle um, and it's not a big emphasis in the workbook here, but let me just point it out. It says for to this end, we both labor and then notice that next phrase and suffer reproach. Why? Because we trust in the living God and notice that if you do approach godliness in this manner, you may suffer reproach. You may suffer criticism. People in general, want to-do lists. They want spiritual disciplines that they can check off their list to feel like they're becoming more godly, but that is not God's method. And so you may 
you know, you may suffer reproach. People make, may make fun of you and say, oh, that's not how you do it. You got to at least do this, this, and this. And so just be ready for that. If you're committed to God's way of making you godly, you may suffer reproach for holding that view, which would be just, just recognizing that we, we get saved by grace from the penalty of sin and we are designed to be saved from the power of sin by the grace of God as well. God providing what we lack and what we cannot do for ourselves. He says, because we have fixed our hope on the living God. So why do we pursue God? Well, we fix our hope on him because he is the living God. No one will ever replace him. He alone is the true God and will never forfeit that position. And, you know, Paul here, he he just pretty much just lays it out, but he's com- completely convinced of God and his plan and his methods. In fact, the word hope means he's got confident expectation. He's not hedging his bets. He's not diversifying his, you know, investments in the God of the Bible and maybe some of these other methods. He he's basically, if you've ever played poker or seen, he's taken all of his chips and he's put it on the Lord. And that's where his hope is. That's where his confident expectation is. And then we see this last phrase that he's the savior of all men, especially a believer. So this doesn't mean that everybody is saved, but rather it means that everybody can be saved. That's really the point of this verse. Again, the one requirement for salvation is faith in the Savior who died for our sins and rose again on the third day. And so if somebody doesn't believe, then they can't be saved. But but God is offering a Savior to all men. And, you know, it, it's been said before, but it's very, I think it's very apropos just to repeat and just remind ourselves that the only people that go to hell are people who've rejected Jesus Christ. And it doesn't mean that they have to cuss God and swing their fist at God. It just means they've never put their faith in Jesus Christ alone as God's solution for their sin problem and their righteousness issue. That they've just rejected that and they've adopted other means by which they want to obtain righteousness or they've adopted a way of thinking that they they say, oh, God's not a judging God. He's not going to judge me. They, they create all sorts of different scenarios in their head. But ultimately what they're doing is they're rejecting God's word and God's solution for their sin and righteousness problem. And that's why in John 3.18, I should make this clarification too. We're not talking about somebody who's believed in the gospel and then rejects Jesus Christ later in life. That the Bible would say that that person is saved if, if they believed. I mean, if they believed, it's easy to get saved because Jesus has done all the work. And so just remember that that moment that you believe in Jesus Christ, that he died for your sins and rose again, you're forgiven in that moment. You've been given eternal life, which is life that lasts forever. Your sins have been completely forgiven in that moment. And so if you reject him later in life, that sin of rejection of Christ has been paid for on the basis of the fact that the Savior has died for your sins and that's been applied to your account. So all of that happens in a moment. What we're talking about when we get to John 3.18 is somebody who's never believed. Let's go ahead and read John 3.18. This is just kind of a side note, but I think it's an important side note to recognize the distinction. John 3.18 says, He who believes in him is not condemned. But then he says, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? And he says this, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. That very last phrase there, because he has not believed is in what we call the perfect tense in the Greek, 
What that indicates is this. It's an action that ha- that was completed in the past with continuing results. And so when it says, because he has not believed, what it's in essence saying, the, the thrust of what he's saying there is he's never believed. He hasn't believed at a point in time in the past and he remains in his unbelief. So we're not talking, Jesus is not talking about someone there who believes and then rejects Christ later or, um, uh, he's talking about somebody there that's never believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the person that will spend eternity in hell, even though as first Timothy 4.10 is saying that, that he is a savior to all men. He's been offered to all men, but some people reject the Lord Jesus and never put their faith in him, in him alone. And so now we're going to move on to this next section, starting in verse 11. And uh, we're going to see 10 commands that Paul uses really for Timothy's protection. And so the very first command is in verse 11 and he says, prescribe or teach. Uh, the new King James says, prescribe these things. And the, the word prescribe means to pass on an announcement. It means uh, Paul commanded Timothy to keep on as a standard practice, presenting and repeating these truths. Remember back in verse six, he had said, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ. And so the idea is, is Timothy, keep on teaching these things. What did Paul, what had Paul been teaching Timothy? Well, he had been warning against some who would fall away in the latter times due to false teaching. He had explained that the false teaching, uh, he had explained the false teaching that was to come in the future. He had commanded him to steer clear of fables and he had been in encouraging him to personally pursue godliness. That's kind of a quick summary of chapter four up to this point. So he says, Timothy, keep teaching these things, keep passing along these truths. And this command highlighted Timothy's greatest job and that of teaching. What Timothy had been taught by Paul, he was to be be prescribing or passing along to others. In 2 Timothy 2.2 says to do it in a strategic way. Don't, don't just teach others so that you can just get a bunch of people sitting at your feet, right? It's do it in a strategic way. Cast a vision that teach people Paul, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2, 2, who can go on and teach others also. You, we want to teach in such a way that, that we are replicating ourselves, that people can do what we do, what we're communicating to them, but they can go and take and redo. And that's what I lo- That's why I love when we put together that with Ephesians 4.11 and just putting practical tools of ministry in your hands and in other people's hands. Because when you use the tools of ministry with somebody else, you can now put that tool in their hands so that they can go and use it with somebody else. That's why I'm passionate about DM2 and I'm passionate about some of the booklets that we've been able to develop and some of the booklets that other people have developed that are good tools to put in my hand, to put in your hand, to put in other people's hands and to keep replicating and repeating this type of teaching, teaching that people need to hear. The second command we see in verse 11 is to teach these things. And again, teach, whereas the previous word kind of had an idea of passing along an announcement. This word is basically saying, lay down the systematic details. It means to instruct by word of mouth. Timothy was actively and systematically, that's that's a good word to describe maybe the distinction between this word and the previous word, 
and intentionally to instruct others in the truth. So the fact that Paul gave this command may indicate that Timothy needed a little prodding to carry out this task. We don't know, but Timothy was probably doing it to some extent, but Paul is saying, don't stop, keep on teaching these things. And that's what we see the first two commands in verse 11. The third command we find in verse 12. He says, let no one look down on your youthfulness. Youthfulness. The phrase look down on means to think lightly of or despise. And you know, it's somewhat common for older men to look down on younger men. Paul therefore sought to embolden Timothy in his role and authority in Ephesus, encourage him, encouraging him to stay strong. And the idea, I think, and we'll see this throughout the Apostle Paul's ministry to Timothy, at least what's recorded, is he, he wanted Timothy to simply recognize his role, his gifting, and his calling comes from God. It doesn't come from man. It doesn't come from himself and, and, and really ultimately didn't come from the Apostle Paul. And so it's it's with that kind of authority, not that Timothy was to lord that over anybody, but to recognize this, this gifting and this calling and this role that he's been assigned as a direct emissary from God himself. That would help him obey this command. Not Don't let anybody look down on you because of your youth. And like I said, that, that's a tendency for older men to, to look down on younger men, but simply because older men have more experience. Typically, they, they typically have more wisdom. They, you know, in terms of life lessons, you know, it, it, the capability would be, you know, you've got a pastor who's like Timothy, who's a young man who, who's got this calling and this role and this giftedness, and he can conceptually teach the word of God in such a way that older people or, or younger people would learn from him. And yet he may not be able to change a flat tire, you know, or he doesn't know how to, to fix his toilet when it breaks down, or, you know, he's still growing in his role as a husband, you know, on a practical level. And so these would all be natural tendencies to maybe look down on a young man that just doesn't have these kind of experiences, how to, you know, invest money or whatever. I mean, you can fit it in, but to recognize that as a young man in the role that Paul had put him in, Paul is going to tell us some things about Timothy that he had nobody else like-minded the way that Timothy was like-minded with him. He tells us that about Timothy and Philippians. Timothy held a special role and he was doing a special work according to this time in history and his gifting that Paul wanted him to accomplish and not allow the typical, you know, looking down on his youthfulness to kind of become uh, maybe a way for Timothy to shrink back from his role, maybe to shirk some of his responsibilities because he didn't feel adequate. Paul was kind of boosting him up and encouraging him, hey, your authority comes from the Lord. Fourth command, rather than allowing people to despise his youth, he wanted him to be an example in all of these areas. In his role, as an evangelist, a, a pastor to pastors, Paul knew how extremely important it was for Timothy to lead a godly life. And so Timothy's personal life needed to match his teaching. This is why he names all these things, speech, conduct, love, faith, purity, show yourself an example to those who believe. And so if, if Timothy could walk in a consistent spirit empowered way, he'd be a testimony to the others. And Again, he's not going to have any consistency in any of these areas if he's not walking by means of the Spirit. He can 
really excel in these areas for a time period. Maybe if he's really strong-willed, maybe longer than most people. But at some point, he's going to be exposed if he's not walking by means of the Spirit. And so Paul's encouragement here is, you want your life to match your teaching, Timothy. And that'll help in terms of the respect that others uh, would give to him. So in order for people not to look down on his youthfulness, Paul reminded Timothy of several practical areas in which he could be or should be a role model. In speech, again, Timothy's speech and teaching should be a model for others to follow. His speech and teaching should reflect grace and sound doctrine. You know, Ephesians 4 talks about speaking the truth in love. Colossians 4 talks about seasoning your your speech with salt and grace. (laughs) You know, kind of the idea that you're not too harsh, but you are truthful, but that you do it in a, in a gracious way. And that is only accomplished as somebody is controlled by the spirit of God. I mean, we tend to have a, an ability to be overly gracious, basically letting people get away with murder or being too direct and crushing somebody. But the spirit of God wants to take the, the truth and grace and put it together in a beautiful way where I'm, I can be sharing direct truth, but you love me for sharing it. You're not offended by it. And obviously people's response factors in a lot there. And that's kind of out of your control. But but Timothy could speak in a way that honored the Lord. That would be consistent with him walking by means of the Spirit. Um, in conduct, t- Timothy's daily life should be consistent with his teaching. Should be an example for others to follow. Is his behavior worth emulating? This is what Paul is talking about. Timothy was to be an example in agape love. This is... This kind of love is described in 1 Corinthians 13. It's impossible apart from the Holy Spirit producing it in us. And we see that the fruit of the Spirit, the first thing mentioned is this love, this agape love in Galatians 5, 22. However, apart from this kind of love, Timothy's words would be empty and useless. This is what 1 Corinthians 13 describes. This You can speak in the words or the tongues of angels. And if it's not done in love, agape love. It's like a sounding gong is what 1 Corinthians 13 tells us. From what Paul said about Timothy in Philippians 2, 19 through 22, Timothy truly was an example of love. Let's go over there and read that because this is the passage I alluded to earlier in terms of Paul's testimony about Timothy and and who he was. This is Philippians 2, 19 through 22. He says, but I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character, that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. And so you see this incredible testimony about Timothy from the Apostle Paul. That was his assessment of Timothy. But one of the things you see is that Paul is still telling and encouraging Timothy that he needs to walk in love. He needs to be an example to the believers in love. And one of the things we learn about that is that past success, even in the spiritual life, does not guarantee present or future success. And what that tells us is this. You may have had past success. You may have been walking in love here as, as Timothy was when Paul writes about him in Philippians. But now Paul, now Timothy's in Ephesus. And guess what? He needs the same Spirit of God controlling and influencing him in Ephesus that was true of him that he could speak about to the Philippians. 
And just because he had past success doing that doesn't guarantee as present success, Timothy has to go on and continue walking by faith in in order for that to be manifested consistently. Another area he was to manifest in his life was in faith. Timothy was to be an example through the way he trusted God and believed his word. If Timothy did not believe God's word, why would his hearers believe God's word? Great question, right? In fact, go with me. I want to show you a passage over in Hebrews chapter 13. And this is another verse about leaders. And this is not in your workbook. So if you want to jot this down, Hebrews 13 verse 7, he says, Remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you. So the the writer of Hebrews is writing to his listeners and reminding them to remember their leaders. Okay, remember the ones who are leaders, elders, if you will, in their congregation. Uh, He says, remember those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you. And then notice this next phrase, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. That's a really interesting phrase, whose faith follow follow. How can you follow someone's faith if you don't see it or hear about it? And and you can't. There's not a way to imitate that. But what happens is as Timothy is living life among the Ephesian believers, as things come up in his life or come up in other people's life, Timothy has an opportunity to verbalize, to give as an example, how he walks by faith. Just using a modern day example, Timothy breaks down on the freeway. He, he's got a flat tire. He doesn't have the money to fix the tire. He's, his cell phone's out of battery and he's communicating this story to somebody in his church at Ephesus. And they say, Timothy, what did you do? And Timothy may have said, you know, I just looked to the Lord right there. I just prayed to the Lord. You know, I, I told him I wasn't prepared for this and I didn't have money. Everything I'm telling you, I told to the Lord and I just began walking to try to get to a phone or to a gas station. And all the way, I was just in sweet fellowship with the Lord. And, you know, I knew that eventually I'd get my car and eventually I'd get my tire, but it just, it wasn't going to happen. So I was just trusting the Lord and and just dependent on him. And, you know, it took me two hours and, and eventually I was able to get to a phone and, and the Lord provided. And you see, there's, there's a modeling of faith that's going on there especially if done in the right way. If Timothy is just trying to make himself look spiritual, then that may not have modeled the faith, but he's modeling that faith. He's modeling how he trusts the Lord. This is what leaders are designed to do. This is what Paul is telling, I believe, Timothy to be an example in faith, showing and communicating and relaying how he trusts the Lord in his daily life. And then finally, in purity. And he could show himself as an example through the way he lived his life in in chastity as a single man. And, you know, this would have been, this would have stood out like a sore thumb because Timothy was, was in the Ephesian culture, which was probably one of the most immoral cultures of the day. If not, I mean, it was definitely immoral. I don't know if it was one of the most, but Corinth was up there. Rome was up there. Ephesus was up there. And Ephesus largely because of the temple worship of Artemis or Diana, where history tells us they, they had thousands of temple priestesses, which were, they were nothing more than female prostitutes designed for worship of Artemis. So you're living in an extremely immoral culture. So Timothy needed to be an example in purity for this church. And so that's a big command. You know, that's, 
in terms of 1 Timothy 4.12, he says, be an example in all of these areas. And now we move on to the fifth command in verse 13. He says, until I come, give attention to, and the phrase give attention to is a verb we have now observed four times in 1 Timothy. It's interesting because it's Paul seemed to gravitate toward this word a couple of times, but it's a nautical term, meaning a ship, shipping term that meant to set a course for or to set sail towards. Timothy was to resolutely steer his mind toward the truth. There was to be no deviation in regard to the priority of God's word. The idea that maybe you could say it in in modern language, he was to, to set his course for his ministry on the word of God. That's kind of the idea that we have communicated in verse 13. Give attention to the following things. He says, give attention to the public reading of scripture. So until Paul's arrival, Timothy was to remain totally focused on the public reading of scripture, as well as on exhortation and teaching. All believers need to hear the word of God read. There's great value in the public reading of God's word. And so through this practice, Timothy was to set an example to be followed by other local teachers. And this is this is actually one of the reasons that we still have scripture reading as a part of our services is just in honor of this instruction to Timothy to have a public reading of the word of God. Also in light of the rising number of false teachers that Timothy was facing, the public reading of the Old Testament scripture was vital. The public reading of New Testament epistles like 1 Timothy was also very necessary. And again, as the workbook says, we would do well to maintain this custom. And you've got a couple of cross-reference verses we won't tackle there, but Nehemiah 8 is great where they they get up, Ezra reading the word of God and then explaining to the people the meaning of the law. And so just a, just a beautiful story there. Nehemiah 8 is they're rebuilding the walls of the city after they'd been exiled and coming back to a value for the word of God. Exhortation in the church today, God uses evangelists and pastors, te- pastor teachers to reinforce the meaning of his word through practical advice and motivation. Thankfully, because pastors and teachers don't do a perfect job of doing this, the spirit of God also takes the word of God and applies it to our hearts. And so that's just really encouraging to know that he is also involved in this ministry to each one of us to, to challenge, to correct, to rebuke, to exhort us to a certain response. Again, exhortation is vital should be a priority in our church services. This is one of God's tools for preparing his church for service. And so the pastor teacher must exhort, must challenge and encourage the church to be doers of the word and not hearers. And this is just a good point. It's, you know, the the teaching or reading of the scriptures is not enough. Encouraging a response or challenging people to respond to the word of God is necessary. We all need that, that extra kind of, loving bump or loving push or whatever you might want to call it to just encourage us to step out and respond to the word of God. Otherwise we become a bunch of people that just fill up notebooks with great teaching and we never respond to it in our daily life. And so that's, that's a tragedy when that happens. Give attention to teaching until I come. So again, the pastor teacher must use his gift to explain and expound the truths of scripture. And as with reading and exhortation, teaching must also be a priority. In fact, there are some 22 references 
which is a lot, to teaching and doctrine in the three pastoral epistles. Paul knew just how vital teaching was to the health of the local church. And you know, it's unfortunate. I don't, I'm not really in the business of trying to criticize other churches. In fact, I'm always mindful of the areas that our church needs to improve. I'm probably think more about those than I do worrying about other churches. One of the things you do notice when I do listen to other messages or, or I see what's going on on social media or on YouTube, there's a lot of motivational messages that are being preached. Just preaching a motivational message isn't enough. Part of preaching, part of being a, a pastor, I believe, is teaching the Word of God. That's laying down truth in a line-by-line, orderly way. And that is so critical to spiritual growth and the development of a healthy church. And there are many churches who, just due to the the, the charismatic ability of, of preaching a, a motivational message or something that really itches the ears, they're, they're growing in terms of numbers exponentially. You know, the temptation is always to just look at that and say, well, that's success. If they're growing numerically, that's success. But you look at the pastoral epistles, you look at the emphasis on teaching and doctrine, and you wonder what the health will be one day of those attending that church. And again, there's lots of factors that come in. It's not that even if you just go to a church that teaches the word of God, that everybody's going to be healthy because there, there's a required individual response to the word of God, but at least recognizing the value of teaching and doctrine as it relates to the emphasis that Paul puts on it in the local church. And so it's just very important. Careful instruction through teaching is vital for believers so they can be sanctified through the truth and so they can reject false doctrine and lies. Very, very important. Sixth command, Paul gets very personal here. Do not neglect, Timothy, the spiritual gift. And the word neglect means simply to be careless. This verb is a present tense command, meaning for Timothy to constantly avoid being careless in the use of his spiritual gift. In fact, he says, don't neglect the spiritual gift within you. Timothy was to recognize, constantly remember his spiritual calling so that he would remain focused on his role in spite any challenges he might have faced in his ministry in Ephesus. We learn years later with Paul in prison, believers being persecuted. He's getting ready to lose his life. In 2 Timothy, he reminds Timothy again of the importance. In fact, since we're close there, go to 2 Timothy 1, 6 and 7. He reminds him of the importance of utilizing his spiritual gift and what a value that's going to be to the local church. Verse 6, therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. And so we, we see even there at the end of Paul's life, he's encouraging Timothy to stir up or it, the idea is don't let that fire be put out, you know, a campfire, keep stirring it up, keep agitating, keep adding sticks, let that thing burn and burn and burn, keep using it because the temptation at that point in history was Christians were getting persecuted. So it might, might just be easier for Timothy just to kind of stay below the radar. Maybe I won't use this spiritual gift. I just want to stay below the radar. And Paul's saying, fan it into flame. Keep using it. God hasn't given you a spirit of fear. Keep using your spiritual gift in the local churches. And so he, he's, he emphasizes this concept with 
Timothy a lot. Don't neglect. Don't be careless with your spiritual gift. God has given you a gift. You need to use it. Quite frankly, we could say that to every believer in our local church. God has given you a spiritual gift. He wants to use you in his church. He wants to use everything that he's gifted you with to benefit the local church. Don't neglect it. Don't be careless with it. Find out what it is, lock in, and, and allow the Lord to begin to use you for from this day forward for the rest of your life. Don't neglect it. Don't be careless with it. Fan it into flame. Now, Timothy, his spiritual gift was recognized through a prophetic utterance. What was Timothy's spiritual gift? Well, 2 Timothy 4.5 says that his gift was an evangelist, a, a church planner, a pastor to pastors. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Those of you that were studying with me uh, in 1 Timothy in chapter 1, I'll say it again here. I, I actually disagree with the Holy Roman DM2 notes on this point. I actually don't believe that Timothy's spiritual gift was an evangelist. I don't know what it was. I think it obviously had a teaching component to it, may have been a pastor teacher gifting. But I read 2 Timothy 4 5 as basically him saying, do the work of an evangelist, implying even though maybe you're gifted over here, do the work of evangelization. Don't ever stop evangelizing. It's kind of, I don't see that as necessarily identifying his gift, but it's a, it's a small disagreement. I don't think it changes much. It just changes that point um, in, the, in the workbook. It was bestowed on him through a prophetic utterance and then with the laying on of the hands. How was this spiritual gift recognized in Timothy? It was given through prophetic utterance with the laying on of hands by the presbytery. Again, a prophet must have been present with Paul, Timothy, and the elders of the local church. And God revealed to this prophet that Timothy would serve Christ as an evangelist or in his gifting. Number two, based on this prophecy, Paul and the elders laid their hands on Timothy to publicly recognize God's call on his life, and they set him apart for ministry. And this was Timothy's ordination service. This is the clarifying point. The laying on of hands is not how Timothy received his spiritual gift. The laying on of hands did not somehow produce or cause his spiritual gift. And this understanding is confirmed by the preposition meta translated with. In other words, if we go back to verse 14, he says, which was given to you by prophecy and then with the laying on of the hands of the eldership or by the presbytery as the New American Standard said. So the deal is Timothy got his spiritual gift the same way we do. The spirit of God gave him his spiritual gift, but Timothy's gifting was confirmed by a prophecy uh, by a first century prophet and, and then recognized as a true gifting by God through the laying on of the hands of the elders of whatever local church they were in at that time. Probably, probably maybe one of the churches in Galatia. We don't know, but that's a possibility. Seventh command it says, take pains with these things. The statement, take pains with these things is a command that means to consider or to concentrate on or to ponder these things in order to perform well. Taking pains with these commands meant Timothy would need to be tireless and tenacious in his dedication to these issues. In other words, make these your priorities, Timothy. Don't, don't ever let your guard down on these. These need to be something that you constantly concentrate on and keep before the churches. Eighth command, 
be absorbed in them so that your progress may be evident to all. The command here is to be absorbed in them. It's literally to be in them. The idea communicated is that Timothy should be living and breathing these things. It should be his passion. This passion should be in line with his calling and his gifting. And all of this should come together. And so Paul was ultra concerned that Timothy be completely absorbed in fulfilling his calling. And, and if he was, he's saying that his progress, his, his growth, progress in this area would be evident to all. Progress has the idea of advancement. And so Timothy was to passionately chase after God's purpose for his life with continual attention to detail. And so this is the, a natural result of obeying commands seven and eight, taking pains or basically making these things your priority and then being absorbed in them, making them a part of your life. And this is an issue that few in ministry understand. Today, people are are warned not to burn out or overdo their service. The plain reading of these commands actually communicates the opposite. Paul was calling Timothy to total immersion into God's call on his life. Basically, I think what we're saying there, it's not to say that people don't need rest or need to pull away sometimes, but what we're saying is that spiritual gifting is not a part-time gig. It's not a part-time job. You're on call. You're calling. The The way God may want to use you is, is you're on call 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It's not, you don't just flip it on when you go on a mission trip and then flip it off when you get home or it's who you are. It's, it's built into your day-to-day life. There's congruency between what you do on Sunday and what you do on Monday. It's just, it's the same. It's, it's who you are. It's, it's, it's kind of the idea that Paul is communicating here. The ninth command, this is such a, a, a great, I mean, it's just such a personal command to me. I pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. And, and I love this emphasis. Timothy was to carefully watch both his personal life and his public ministry. And this type of attention to the details of life is essential for the minister who desires to end well and to enjoy a good conscience day by day in ministry. In fact, many church leaders who have been solid in their doctrine have somewhere along the way allowed unaddressed sin or other hindrances to ultimately ruin their ministry. And 1 Timothy 1 shows that this happened to some of the leaders there in Ephesus. In fact, one of, I would say this a thousand times over, that one of the pastors or leaders' biggest enemies is ministry busyness. It's one of the biggest enemies because if you're always going, very rarely do you, do you take time to self-assess and see where you're at internally. You see where you're slipping. Maybe you've allowed sin to go unconfessed and maybe you've become more and more okay with that. So it's very important for Timothy as a leader to pay close attention to himself and to his teaching. But many pastors just think, well, if I got the doctrine right and I'm teaching well and people seem to be growing, then probably everything's okay. And it's like a sinkhole. Everything looks great on the surface, but underneath the ground, the the heart is caving away. And someday that hole is going to show up. It's very important for church leaders to also take heed to themselves, to pay close attention to their own individual walks with the Lord. Some leaders fail to spend time in God's word. They're spending time in it to teach it. They're spending time in it to prepare lessons. 
but they're not spending time in it to, to grow and to minister to their own spiritual vitality. So some fail to spend time in God's word. Others let people problems destroy their vitality. They're always dealing with people issues. And so that destroys their vitality. Still others let a frustration with lack of success change their methods or their doctrine. And these servants often end up on the garbage heap of failure. Somewhere along the way, they seared their conscience and they compromised. In fact, Paul tells the Ephesian elders the same thing in Acts 20, 28, that this is very important. And pastors and leaders need to really stop and consider and take evaluation of what's going on internally from time to time. Otherwise, any leader or pastor can fall subject to this failure. So for these reasons, Paul instructed Timothy to stay focused on what really mattered. He wanted his son in the faith not only to focus on teaching and remaining true to sound doctrine, but also pay attention to his personal life. He was not to focus on results. And I love this passage. I, it's, it's not here in the book, but go, go with me to Acts. Um, see if I can find it on the fly here. Acts, let's see, chapter 4 and verse 13. You know, this is after Paul and John had been arrested for, for healing a lame man. Through the name of Jesus Christ, they had been arrested. They had been uh, kept in prison and then brought before the Sanhedrin. And uh, they, they had talked to the Sanhedrin. We finally get to verse 13. And I love, I just love this phrase. It says, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled. And I love this next phrase. And they realized that they had been with Jesus. And you know, that to me is the biggest compliment you could ever give to a Bible teacher or pastor. You know, as teachers, the tendency is want is to want to hear from other people that you're a good teacher, that you that your teachings bless them. And that that is encouraging. But but even more encouraging would be like would be the comment, wow, that I can just tell that he spends time with Jesus. I can tell that he has been around Jesus. And that reflects this concept that that I think Paul is communicating here with the ninth command to to pay attention to yourself. Just make sure, pastor, leader, elder, Timothy, just make sure that you're enjoying Jesus Christ. Don't get so caught up in the ministry. Don't get so caught up in all these other commands that I'm giving you that you begin to drift away in your, your fellowship with the Lord Jesus. That's always the most important thing. That, it, that internal vitality has got to undergird every bit of ministry that you're going to do. And finally, in verse 16, he says, the 10th command, persevere in these things for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Uh, to persevere was to remain or to abide in a place. It was not to depart. So Paul strongly emphasized to Timothy to not get off course like the false teachers had. Again, talk about a strong emphasis. You know, Paul had just been telling Timothy what to do. And now he follows up with the command and don't move. (laughs) Here's what you do. And don't ever move Timothy from here. By fulfilling these two commands, these last two commands, Timothy would ensure salvation for both himself and for his listeners. Timothy could not save people from hell. So what is meant by the phrase that you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you? And this is, again, a great time to talk about the three tenses of our one salvation. Again, the word salvation has three tenses, past, present, and future. And so whenever the word salvation appears, 
The context must be studied to determine which tense of salvation is being taught. Saved from what is a question that helps determine the meaning of the word. And so in this case, what are they saved from? What is the context talking about? Well, the context here has to do with Timothy fulfilling his calling, remaining in fellowship with the Lord in in daily life. And so this is a sanctification context that we're talking about, describing how Timothy would be saved from a life of unfruitful service. And so the idea being communicated is that if Timothy walked by faith, he enjoyed fellowship with the Lord, he would experience power over sin in his daily life. And then likewise, if those under his teaching learned to walk by faith and enjoy fellowship with the Lord, they too would experience the power of sin in their daily life. And so that's the conclusion of chapter 4.